Sierra. Welcome to the Sausage of Science. I am Chris Lynn. I'm a biocultural medical anthropologist at the University of Alabama. I am Kara Akebach, a biological anthropologist at the University of Notre Dame, currently coming at you from isolation, which for me ends today. I'm coming at you from my tornado bunker because, again, we have tornadoes coming at us, which happens to be my office. Uh, my tornado is my COVID positive husband who I have miraculously managed to not contract the virus from. Like I, I literally slept next to him while he was actively symptomatic. <laughs> and I have now tested negative twice, several days apart. It's and that first shot you got. I have no idea. It's luck. It's the shot. And I took Dan Lieberman's advice from the book and the interview that we just had from him that being physically active may help you with COVID-19, whether preventative or getting over it. And I literally took the track of if I don't stop moving, I won't get sick. So what have you been doing to move? I have just been walking and a little bit of jogging. You know, I'm not much of a jogger, but I decided to do that. I don't know why. I think it was the stress and still mm. is the stress of the situation because I had to isolate, teach from home, take care of my husband, do all of my regular house chores and then do all of his regular house chores because I have forced him to stay in the guest room and he is not allowed out of the guest room, <laughs> which is why I've managed to continue to stay COVID negative at this point. And so it's been the only way for me to get out of the house safely in case I was infectious and possibly yeah. spread. So it was like, go walk around the various neighborhoods. That's good. I had been doing that until winter hit through the whole pandemic is getting my 10,000 steps in with the Husky. But when it got cold, that fell off. And now in the hotel, I've actually hit the exercise room a few times for the first time in a whole year. Nice. And I am sore AF. Yeah, my birthday gift to myself because I will be two weeks out from the second vaccine dose literally almost exactly on my birthday, it'll happen a couple of days before, I plan to go to the gym and lift weights, fully masked and all the precautions, but like that is going to be my gift to myself because I miss it so much. Yeah, it was so nice. And uh, they only let one guest at a time in. Of course, it's not a full gym, but you know, I've had no gym for a while. So exactly. that's a nice shoe you picked up. My I'm COVID negative, uh, despite my poor husband, who is doing all right, by the way, listeners. Uh, he had a rough day Monday, but he's been on the men since. My gift to myself for being COVID negative is new shoes, because though our listeners can't see, Chris can see the giant chunk that I have worn through the sole of my shoe. And this is basically all pandemic wear, by the way. <laughs> so speaking of, I don't have a transition, but yeah. next week's HPA <laughs> meetings, isn't it? We should be next we should week be is HPA. Sadly, we're not all jumping on planes and flying off to see each other in person. But we have I can't a buy Mark Kissel a fancy coffee. He won't even be there because AAPA is not till later in April. AAPA is like throughout the month of April. They've really spread it out for folks, which. Oh my I, God, I see I'm costs so, and benefits to it. Yeah, I'm, I'm mentally having a difficult time wrapping my brain around how the meetings are working. And I know that the entire executive committee of the Human Bio Association is having the same thing. So apologies to everyone listening who feels like the absent-minded professors are running the show because we are. It'll be fine. Anyway, what is our plenary session this year, Chris? Our plenary session is the biological normalcy session that was organized by Jennifer Cullen and Virginia Vitum, who are both at IU, Indiana University, and the Pearl, Pearl Memorial. Memorial. Will be Andrea Wiley, who is also at IU. And Jennifer and Andrea have both been on the show before, but we asked Jennifer back 
to update us on her research. She's a grad student under Andrea there and to tell us about this session. This is going to come out on Monday, so just in time for people to be able to log in and follow along. Sounds great. So she's here, at least in the waiting room. Let's go ahead and bring her on. Hi. <laughs> Hello. Welcome back to the show. Yeah. How are you Thanks. doing? What have you been up to? Because it's been what, like almost two and a half years since we had you on the podcast last? It's been a while. I feel yeah. like we recorded in like early or mid 2019. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's been a while. It has been almost two years. So update so, us. What has been going yeah. on? How has pandemic life been? Oh, you know, amazing. Just living the dream like everyone else. Since I last talked with you all, I had to finish my data collection for my dissertation real fast because of the pandemic. So just prematurely ended, but so did a lot of other people. So I just decided to move forward with the data that I had. And so, yeah, and I, I kind of switched some of the things up. So I, I was able to interview more people on Zoom because I had more funds to pay them for interviews than I would have if I was collecting more biomarkers. So, I mean... I have more qualitative data, uh, not as much quantitative data as I wanted, but that's okay. Yeah, and then since then, I mean, I've been on dissertation writing fellowship this past year, so I feel super lucky for that. And so I've been, you know, writing up my dissertation, getting those papers out, publishing them. So I think last time I was on the podcast with y'all, I was talking about some of my research on implicit and explicit fat bias in adolescence in Indiana. So I got that published in Pediatric Obesity. And then I have another paper out for review right now on adolescents' perceptions of what an average or healthy or normal body looks like and how those definitions are similar and different for adolescents. And then, yeah, I've been having a great time on the job market. So that's been interesting during COVID, a little bit different. You know, virtual campus visits has but been... But they suck, don't they? They're weird. I mean, it's good in some respects because you're not having to travel and things like that, it's kind of not as exhausting because you don't have to be on all the time. You know, you get to turn the computer off between meetings and just do nothing or stare at the wall if you need to versus having to be on. Do you feel that you don't get quite as good of a sense of the department or the university community from this? It's really weird because you don't actually get to visit the city that you're supposed to be moving to if you get the job. You don't get to see the campus. You don't really get to see how people interact with each other. And you don't get to see the facilities, like what your lab might look like if you go there, things like that. They try to do a good job of sending you videos and pictures and stuff, but I mean, it's not the same as actually being there. And interacting with people is way more awkward online than it is in person for some people. For me, <laughs> sometimes I'm a little bit more awkward when I'm not like actually face to face. You can't see body language as much and that kind of stuff. So you don't know how people are reading you and giving the job talk and the teaching demo. That was weird. You can't look at anybody in their eyes. You don't have those people really reassuring you in the audience, like nodding their head uh -huh. yeah. or the people shaking their heads like, oh no, what did I say wrong? You know? And so you're just like talking to a screen and that's a little bit weird because it's hard to be personal when it's online, it's digital and you can't see anybody's face. My uh, head bobs nonstop in these interviews. So just take a, a little video, Giphy or whatever they're called of my head and put it up there and you'll just see me doing this the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you're on the job market. Tell us about your dissertation research. It's probably related to this plenary session that you're hosting, I imagine. And so what should folks know about your research? 
So my dissertation, it has three papers in it. And so one paper is that paper on implicit and explicit fat bias in adolescence. Another one is about the perceptions of what an average or a healthy or a normal body looks like for adolescence. And then the third paper has to do with perceived fat stigma and allostatic load. So how experiences with weight-based stigma impacts health in a negative way and how obesity prevalence or, you know, what the norm or the average body that you see around you, how that might impact that relationship between fat stigma and health outcomes. And yeah, and so in the plenary, I will talk about that paper. And I will also touch on the implicit explicit fat bias paper as well. That one informed the hypotheses for the third paper. The talk will really talk about my research just kind of as case studies. So it'll start out with talking more generally by covering some aspects about how body fat is understood in U.S. cultural context, and then tie in my research as like case studies using the framework of biological normalcy that I think I talked with you guys about last time too, and what the plenary session is kind of going to be going over as well. And so one of the case studies that I'll talk about though is that most recent research on perceived fat stigma and allostatic load among late adolescents and young adults, so people age 18 to 22, from the state of Indiana. And so the two questions that I was really interested in for this research was first, how is obesity prevalence related to perceived weight stigma? So because the previous research I did found that for adolescents in Indiana, implicit fat bias was, anti-fat bias was higher among adolescents living in a population where obesity prevalence was lower. So where higher body fat was less common, implicit anti-fat bias was higher. And so I predicted that the people who were from regions of Indiana where obesity prevalence was lower were going to report higher perceived fat stigma. And then the second question I was interested in is looking at how perceived fat stigma was related to allostatic load. And there have been two studies that have tested this relationship already, and they both found that higher fat stigma predicted higher allostatic load. One study was in the U.S. with adults aged like 24, 25 to 74, so just only focused on adults. And then the other one was in older adults in England, I think. And so those were adults that were 50 plus years old. So my work is a little bit different because it focuses on the older adolescents, the younger adults. So age 18 to 22, but I still predicted a similar outcome, right? So I just was seeing, do we actually see this relationship at younger ages as well? And so what I found was that there was no relationship between obesity prevalence and perceived weight stigma in my sample. Mm. But I did find that higher fat stigma was associated with higher allostatic load. And so those who were reporting being targeted more often for their weight had worse health outcomes, even after controlling for body fat percentage. So it's not just attributable to having excess weight, like some of the biomedical research might point to. And interesting that I found was that obesity prevalence did not predict how often people felt targeted for their weight, but I did find that obesity prevalence moderated the relationship between fat stigma and allostatic load. So the relationship between how often you're targeted for your weight and your health outcomes, that looked different depending on the epidemiological context. So I found that the most vulnerable were those people who were experiencing a lot of stigma who were from regions of Indiana where obesity prevalence was lower. And so in looking at the populations where obesity prevalence was higher, allostatic load did not really change much hmm. based on perceived fat stigma. You know, I'm still thinking about why this would be the case. And like, I don't think that people who live in places where obesity prevalence is higher are somehow immune to the effects of psychosocial stress with stigma. Stigma is still harmful. 
but I have some quantitative data and also from my interview. So I haven't analyzed any of my qualitative data yet. I did 54 interviews within people in this sample and I have a lot of data on emotional support. So sources of emotional support, how much emotional support Mm -hmm. they feel like they get, and also different coping strategies or different mechanisms for dealing with these instances of fat stigma. So I haven't been able to analyze those data yet. That's a project for later on this year. Perhaps there might be differences in emotional support or coping strategies based on obesity prevalence. So that's my next step, what I'm interested in looking into next. A real quick practical question I had. I'm just curious about the model that you have for your dissertation. We don't do the article model here, and I know a lot of grad students listen to this program. Do you have the option to do a sort of book-type dissertation versus an article series of dissertation, and how does that work for you? Yeah, so I think that there is that option, but I think it also depends on your advisor. So if your advisor wants you to do the book kind, you got to do the book kind. I fortunately had the option. And for me, I chose to do the three paper method because as a biological anthropologist, I feel like we tend to publish as articles. So I just found that to be more helpful for me. I didn't feel like it was this big daunting task to write my dissertation because I was just writing one paper at a time. And so it felt like a little daunting task and then another one and another one. But it was kind of nice because I was able to kind of stagger it. And the way I did it was I just I would submit an abstract to present at a talk or give a talk or give a poster at a conference and then I would base that on, okay, this is going to be my first paper. And then I would work through and I would write that as a paper as I was getting ready to present for the next conference. And so, I don't know, that kind of helped me. I found it beneficial to do the three paper method. So I'm glad that I had that option, but I don't think many people do it even here at IU where I'm at right now. So I think it's a trend that's starting to pick up a little bit more because, you know, in the end, I think it is a lot more professionalizing, at least for biological anthropologists, to get you that experience if you hadn't been publishing already along your PhD journey. So that does make a lot of sense. So I'm going to steer us back, (laughs) steer us back to the HBAs. Uh, So you've given us a little bit of information about this year's plenary session, which is the normal and the normative in human biology. If you could tell us who all is involved, why you all decided to submit this for a plenary session, and why you think it's important to be a plenary session at the HBAs. So Andrew Wiley and I organized a workshop or a short seminar at the School for Advanced Research, which is in Santa Fe, New Mexico. That was in, I think, like October, November in 2019. And there were 10 of us, 10 biological anthropologists there. And when we were there, we kind of worked together to discuss two different meanings for the term normal as it relates to human biological variation or human populations. And how these two different understandings of this term normal are related to one another. And so these two different definitions are, you know, normal could mean or refer to statistical norms. So these would be like measures of central tendency or population distributions in regards to a particular biological trait. And then the other definition of normal or the other meaning of normal could be culturally shaped normative views or ideas about what a body should look like or what's normal about a particular biological trait or what's thought to be normal. We also organized a session in the AAAs in 2019 where we talked about this. And then we decided to do another session and and invite a few different scholars uh, to talk about different biological traits as well. So the speakers in the plenary session that's going to be on Monday, um, they're each going to highlight different human biological traits as they are related to these two different definitions of normal in the framework of biological normalcy. And so the different topics that are going to be covered are body fat. So I'll be talking about body fat. Uh, Dan Hrushka is going to be talking about height. 
norms around height. Heather Norton's going to be talking about skin pigmentation. Sabrina Agarwal is going to be talking about sex-related bone health. So sex differences in bone health or understandings of sex-related differences. Virginia Vitsum is going to give her talk on ovarian functioning. Tina Moffitt's going to talk about health guidelines that pregnant women are given. And Joseph Graves is going to be talking about the concept of race. And then the pro lecture is going to be given by Andrea Wiley. And she's going to be talking a lot about biological normalcy. So really getting into this framework and describing it a lot better than I've just described it. And then she'll be providing a couple of different examples. And one of them will be milk consumption and lactase persistence. So those are all the things that are going to be covered in the plenary. And so I'm really looking forward to it. Do you want to give a pitch for what time things are so folks can tune in? It's $100 to register if you're a non-member, I believe. Yeah. Yep. But $10 if you are a member. The plenary session is the first thing on the agenda for the whole conference. So I think the conference is all next week and it starts at 11 Eastern time. Okay. And I think there'll be some remarks by the president and then we'll jump right into the plenary session. So I think that starts at like 11.15. And it goes all day Monday with the pro lecture at 3.45 Eastern time. Yes. Yes, Apparently Eastern there's also a, a coffee room from 12.45 to 1.30 and 3.30 to 3.45. There is a coffee room, but there's no coffee provided to you. <laughs> oh, we've gotten off track. <laughs> oh, Chris, where are we with these questions? One of the um, upshots of this is sort of public health orientation. All this research really suggests how normalcy is employed and can stigmatize people and how public health can deal with this, right? So American society is at a point where we're more accepting of the body as it is, but fighting fat shaming on social media, there's a lot of this going on. So I'm curious as to how you think fat stigma and perception need to be addressed or what can be employed in public health arena or taken away to reduce widespread fat stigmatization. Oh yeah, that's easy, right? We could do that tomorrow. No, that's hard. There's not a magic fix for that, right? Because I think fat stigma is so pervasive and there's so many different sources of it. Like it comes from so many different places. It's not just public health, right? It comes from interpersonal relationships or interpersonal interactions with people. It comes from just more broad societal norms and expectations and understandings about what is healthy and what is normal. And then also policy and public health, right? There's a lot of things that can be done. I think one of the biggest things that needs to happen is pulling apart discussions of health from discussions with weight. So weight and health need to kind of be detangled a bit for us to stop looking at excess weight as being automatically considered unhealthy and people who are thin automatically being considered healthy. This can be done by incorporating things like the health at every size principles, right? So the health at every size kind of rejects the use of weight or size or BMI as being used for proxies of health and also rejects the idea that our weight is somehow our choice and we choose to be the weight that we are and that it's just so easy to manipulate and change. And so, I mean, I think pulling apart those discussions of health from weight is really important. I think representation too, you were just mentioning social media and we do see that kind of happening in social media. And I do remember in my interviews that I did with the late adolescents, young adults, social media came up a lot in terms of when I was asking them, you know, is there anything that you see or anything that you experience that makes you feel good or bad about your weight? So when I asked them things like that, then a lot of times social media would come up and sometimes it would be, oh, this makes me feel bad. When I see things like people advertising weight loss in terms of 
you know, oh, have this drink and drink this weight loss supplement. And then there's always that before and after picture of somebody who lost a bunch of weight. And we're supposed to applaud this person for losing weight and sort of put more value on the thinner body than the bigger body. But then I also saw a lot of, or I heard a lot of things that came out about social media also was, well, I actually follow a lot of fat positive pages. You know, that makes me feel better to see representation of bigger bodies doing things and engaging in a lot of different kinds of activities like being fit or going out and doing exercise videos, but they're not necessarily like super toned, muscular or thin. And so they would say seeing things like that would make them feel a lot better. So I think representation is super important. And so things like social media or even like, I think stores using mannequins of different body sizes that are standing next to each other. And like the bigger mannequins aren't relegated to the back of the store in the corner, the plus size section, right? Like they're, oh, they're up front and center and there's variation in sizes that are being displayed next to each other showing the same clothes. And so just little things like that is really important. But yeah, there's no magic fix. It's going to take a lot of work. (laughs) I feel like that phrase, there's no magic fix and no magic bullet gets used so often on the show and with our work and in public health. It's a lesson that the public just doesn't seem to get because everyone wants that quick fix, but oh well. Anyways, building off of that, your work and you know the topic of this plenary session as well, a lot of it revolves around BMI, body mass index, which people use or misuse for indicators of health and well-being all the time. And so there's a couple of things I'd like for you to talk about that. And that is one, your experience of using BMI as a tool, as well as the problems with it. But also in the right here and right now is that BMI is being used as one of the indicators to get the vaccine for the COVID-19 virus early. Is that actually meaningful if somebody say has a high BMI, but absolutely no health issues whatsoever? And I heard a story on NPR last week, I think, where they were interviewing college students about them trying to get a hold of the vaccine. And a student was like, I have a high BMI, but I'm perfectly healthy. And I have been nothing but stigmatized for my weight and BMI my entire life. So I am damn well going to take advantage of this, because this is the one time my BMI does something good for me. So yeah, I'd like you to speak to that too, about the vaccine and how BMI is being used, whether for good or bad, to distribute it in, you know, in the different categories of who qualifies to get it. I mean, yeah, BMI is so easy to measure, right? It's super easy. It's something that you can measure indirectly too by asking somebody. I mean, it's not as good, quote unquote, but you can ask somebody in a survey, what's your weight and what's your height and come up with some sort of calculation, right? Or you could measure their height and weight and it's super easy to just calculate it. And it does, it gives a proxy for body fat percentage, right? And it's one of the best ones among different ratios of weight and height, but it's not really the best indicator of actual body composition. The person who discovered BMI said, this is an okay measure. It's a good proxy and it's okay for population level studies, but it's inappropriate for individual diagnosis, right? So it was never meant to be used as a diagnostic tool at the individual level, but it's super simple and easy. And now, you know, decades later, it's become widely used as a tool for individual diagnosis, despite its inappropriateness and despite its ability to really predict individual health. And I think BMI is also interesting in terms of biological normalcy, because we're told if you go and Google, is my body weight healthy? The very first thing that pops up is a whole bunch of BMI calculators, right? So that's the first thing. So if you're trying to figure out, is my body weight healthy? Oh, here, just calculate your BMI. It'll tell you. And the first thing that pops up is the CDC BMI calculator. And so you go in and you put in your measurements. It'll tell you what category you're in. 
figure out what your BMI is and it gives you a number, but what does that number mean, right? And so it's categorized and it's put into these different categories. And the one that we're supposed to be aspiring to, the ideal one is called normal, right? So normal is just being equated with health and being equated with healthy. And so this relegates all of the other categories to being somehow abnormal or unhealthy, even though it's not really a good indicator or predictor of individual health, right? And what I noticed, I went in and I messed around a little bit. And so going and looking at the CDC BMI calculator, you know, if you put your weight in and your height and you fall into the quote unquote normal category, it just tells you, great, you're normal, good job. And you don't need to worry about doing anything about your weight. But if your measurements fall into overweight or obese categories, then it's like, oh, hold up. You're falling into a category that is overweight or obese or whatever. You need to make sure you don't gain any more weight. And also, if you have any of these other risk factors, you need to start losing weight. I think it's gotten better over time because at least they're using person-first language. They're, they're talking about categorizations. They're not saying you're obese, you know, which is good. They don't tell you to automatically lose weight. They do reference other indicators of health. But what about the people who are falling into the normal ranges who don't even pay attention to their other risk factors that they might have just because they fall into this quote-unquote normal weight range? So I don't know. I thought that was kind of interesting. There's this emphasis to lose weight just based on how much you weigh or to maintain your weight just based on what your BMI is. With the COVID stuff, when you go onto the CDC, like when you click on the link for the calculator, there's this big thing across the top of the thing that says COVID-19, obesity and excess weight increase severe illness risk. It's sort of blurring the lines between obesity as a cause of disease versus obesity as a risk factor. And that's problematic too, right? So obesity is associated with a lot of different things or BMI is associated with a lot of different things, but association doesn't mean causation. And that becomes problematic when that line between risk factor and direct cause of something is blurred. We had an interesting interview with Dan Lieberman a couple of weeks ago, and I tend to go back and forth between feeling stressed because when I put my calculations in there, you know, I'm like, I'm almost 50. So classic dad bod, and it puts me in the overweight category and I start stressing out. And then I read some of the work of our colleagues who reinforce the same sentiment that it's more complicated and we should not feel stigmatized, but then you have to drill down on your habits, right? And one of the habits that's risky is eating high sugar, high carb late at night, which is exactly what I do. So now I worry that all my organs are gaining fat and that I'm putting myself at increased risk. So the internalization, what I'm saying of these metrics is such a real force in our society. And I feel the struggle that you mentioned, like, yeah, it's an easy fix, right? Because it's like, change the website and we'll all be better. But we've all internalized all this stuff throughout our whole life. That's not a question, obviously. That's like a classical dude in the audience who has a question, but it comes with a long prelude. Yeah, but you're pointing directly to another source of stigma, yourself, right? We stigmatize ourselves too. And so like when we have certain ideas about ourselves, maybe we'll, we think like we see other people and we're like, oh, that's fine for them, but not for me. Mm. Like, oh no, what's my BMI? Like, oh, now I'm worried. If you're thinking that way about yourself, you might think other people are thinking that way about yourself, right? So you might walk into a room and think everybody is thinking all of these bad things about you. And maybe they're not. Maybe they're not thinking about that at all. Maybe they think your hair looks great that day or whatever. Your shoes are really cool. I don't know. Like just you thinking that other people might be thinking something bad about your weight is enough to elicit a stress response. You know, if you do that over and over, that can lead to health issues over time. 
we literally have this conversation in my family every day as we're eating and then going for our seconds we're all like oh i shouldn't do this i'm too fat and then we're like oh you're not too fat you're perfectly healthy and then we all look at the dog and we start arguing about whether the dog is fat so yeah i, I totally feel you I have a question that I imagine you've gotten it a lot lately. If you're on the job market and you're, you're doing interviews, they're asking you what your next project is going to be. So I'm curious what your next project is going to be. I have a couple of ideas in mind. First, I would be interested in continuing the work on looking at the relationship between weight stigma and allostatic load, but doing a longitudinal study rather than cross-sectional. So I can kind of at least get to some sort of causal link maybe. And so maybe following up over four years and maybe with younger participants. What came out of a lot of the interviews I did was that middle school was the absolute worst. And so I would be interested in maybe following somebody who, you know, is starting high school, take some baseline measurements and follow up with them when they're 18. And so that's one that I'm interested in looking at and then looking at kids who live in different regions that vary by obesity prevalence to see if this relationship does in fact differ depending on obesity prevalence. So if what we see around us influences, you know, how we're treated by others and how that might impact our health. The other project that I would be interested in doing is trying to come up with some new tools to assess implicit and explicit fat bias in younger children. So first I would have to develop those tools. And there have been some tools for this that have been developed for other traits, like skin color and things like that. So I would probably base these off of other models that I've already seen for other traits. And then I want to come up with a learning module that teachers can incorporate into their lectures about nutrition or about health that can kind of try to reduce implicit fat bias. So I'll come up with these learning modules and then measure implicit an explicit fat bias before and after and see if there's some way that we can at an early age try to reduce that implicit fat bias because there's no magic fix right for fat stigma but part of trying to change normative views about what is healthy and what is normal is reducing implicit fat bias and i think implicit fat bias is a little bit more i mean that's the one that we really need to work on more i mean explicit fat bias yes that needs to be reduced but i think that more and more as we're seeing it's unacceptable to be openly biased against larger bodies like then people are like oh yeah yeah i'm more fat positive but we see that explicit fat bias and implicit bias don't always map on Right. So like with the study I talked with you all about last time in the adolescence, they were saying, oh, yeah, we're fat positive. The explicit fat bias was relatively positive, but everybody was showing pretty high anti fat bias in the cognitive testing. So either they were trying to sound like they were more positive or they really thought they were more positive, but they actually had more internalized anti fat bias than they maybe thought. So yeah, so that would be the goal of that project would be trying to find ways to reduce implicit anti fat bias at a young age. I mean, it's important to reduce that in adults as well, but it might be more effective if you start younger. So many things when it comes to just even science communication, it seems that once certain things have set in at an early age, it becomes harder and harder to dispel those and change those beliefs because that's kind of how we are programmed in so many ways. But either way, I think those projects sound fantastic. And I, I think we have a lot of really exciting and excellent work to expect from you in the coming years. And I can't wait to see it. Also, just from the plenary session, I, I think everybody who's listening to this should definitely check it out, as well as look at the work of all of the folks who are participating in that plenary session. Uh, but as always, we like to end our podcast interviews with a bit of a fun question uh, to find out what kind of fun things you've been doing in this past 13 months of pandemic. How have you managed your work-life integration when so many of our outlets have been cut off from us? I think you guys asked me this question last time, not about the pandemic, but just like, what do you do for fun? 
I don't remember really, but I think all the things I said were like all still things I can do now. So a lot of those things haven't changed. I'm still puzzling. I'm still going out for hikes. I'm still watching true crime documentaries, which I feel like the pandemic has brought way more of those. Like there's so many more true crime documentaries that have come out over the past year. Recommendations, please, because I am totally a true crime TV lover. Unsolved Mysteries came back. Oh, like, yeah, what? yeah, yeah. I, I recently what? started like the Mormon murders or murder among Mormons. Oh, yeah, watch that. Mm-hmm. That one's not there. I'm like, I got an episode and a half in, and I'm just like, eh. Yeah, yeah, that mm-hmm. one was not one that kept me captivated as much as some of the other ones. I definitely watched Tiger King. I kind of refused. I refused feels- to be a part of that. Oh, <laughs> what? I totally watched it. Simultaneously, it feels like Tiger King came out two weeks ago and like five years ago. I don't know what pandemic has done to time. Since you're both in Indiana, there's a tiger facility that you should go visit in Centerpoint, Indiana, where my grandmother lived. It's a huge thing like that, where there's just like 50 tigers in all their pens and you can go. It's in the middle of nowhere near Brazil, Indiana. So it's Mm. between both of you, but check it out. So I, I still like to have game nights, but those are gone virtual now. So the types of games have changed, but that's been fun. Except, you know, now all of our work has to be online. So it's kind of weird when our socializing has to be online as well. Definitely feeling the Zoom burnout like I'm sure everyone else has. So that should make the conference so it, fun. Except for the Sausage of Science interviews, of course. We oh, were yeah. Zooming well I mean, before always the online. Yeah, like, we were yeah. Zooming way Asians. before. Anyway, Jennifer, thank you so, so much for coming back on the show and talking about your really excellent and important work, as well as promoting what is going to be a fantastic HBA plenary session and Pearl Memorial Lecture. Yes, please come to the HBA plenary session and all the other sessions. I'm sure will be great too, but come to the plenary session and then we're going to have a special issue in AJHB coming out soon as well. So everybody who's in the plenary session will be contributing a paper plus a few more. The special issue, it's supposed to be coming out in May, June, I think, but it, depending on you know how quickly we can get everybody's papers through. Now, AJHB yeah. has been cranking out the special topic issues yeah. so much. They've been doing a great it. job. That's really yeah. good. And some really cool ones too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're exciting. A lot of biocultural stuff. So mm-hmm. it's really good. Jennifer, work. thank you so much. And we will see you Monday morning. Yeah. See you. Have a Bye. good one. <laughs>